Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. Valentino Stoll. Hey there. Darren Bramer. Hello, everyone. And Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we have a special guest, and that is Michael Orr. Michael, do you want to say hello? Introduce yourself. Let us know why you're famous. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Michael Orr, a site reliability engineer for Doximity. I'm not sure I'm famous, but I'm here today because I wrote a blog post about some of the steps we took to change our Rails apps when we were moving to the Kubernetes platform, when we were containerized. Gotcha. And Doximity, isn't that where, now my brain isn't working, where John works? No, that's me, um, Valentino. <laughs> oh, that's where you work, Valentino? Yeah, I work with Michael. Right. He's awesome. I was, I was going to say, I've heard it somewhere. So if it's not on this show, I don't know. <laughs> Good deal. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Well, yeah, let's let's go ahead and dive right in. It's kind of interesting because... I mean, I use Docker images at work when I'm running our apps and things like that, but it looks like this is more focused on deployment rather than on developer machines. Am I getting that right? Yeah, although at Doximity, we've been using Docker for a long time. We have been using Docker Compose with our uh, development Mm -hmm. environment, and that helps us get all that up. But we're moving now to running our applications on the Kubernetes platform. And the first step of that is to get them running in containers. Right. So I'm just going to say there was a bit more here than I expected because I've set up Rails apps in Docker containers before and used Docker Compose that I set up. And it was basically, so grab all this stuff, make sure you have the right stuff involved, go. Right? Run. Right. I think a little bit of it is not just because we're using it with Docker Compose, but because we are using it with the Kubernetes platform. Okay. So, but some of the changes you'd kind of make anytime you're looking to run things in containers in production. One of the first changes we had to make was logging all of our, uh, sending our logs to standard out. With a traditional, most apps running on a server, you're going to send your logs to a file and that's fine because the server is going to continue to exist. But with Kubernetes, we're putting those containers up, they're ephemeral, they're coming back down as we scale. And so putting the logs to standard out allows them to be captured by other programs so that they exist beyond the life of the container. Basically, logs need to go to standard out because the containers are ephemeral. So those containers disappear and with them, the logs. And by sending them to standard out, there are parts of our Kubernetes platform that are able to collect the logs from there and store them outside of the container. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that the logging to standard out did that. I, I just assumed you didn't want accumulating large log files on your containers and eventually having them run out of space if they wind up living longer than you think they will. Right. No, I, I think it's it's something that I'm not quite sure that I understand exactly how the Kubernetes platform is collecting those logs. I just know that the the output that goes to standard out for a container is collected. And then we send that to Sumo Logic. So that's where we're able to do a lot of our logs spelunking, if you will. 
Yeah, I remember having to do this when I first started doing container-based applications. It does seem a little bit counterintuitive, right? Like generally just logging the standard out, you're thinking, okay, that's going to get lost. No one's ever going to see that, but it is actually recommended in this case. And Michael, thanks for putting this article together because I think it's a great topic. I think there's so much, so many benefits to containers. This is one of the first things I think that trips up a lot of people is just the, like you mentioned, the ephemeral nature of the containers. The life cycle is very different. And actually, I think you actually touched on even a larger issue. And I'm wondering if you ran into this as well. So not just the log files, I think, are the first manifestation of this concern, but there's a lot of other applications particularly older ones, there could be other reasons that write files to disk, write data to disk. Maybe they're processing data in batches. They're maybe doing other things. Have you encountered any other issues related to the ephemeral nature? Or do you have guidance for folks who have applications that are doing some level of I.O. right now? Well, in, in general, a lot of the things that we write to disk, you know, images or things like that are just being sent to S3. So they're not on the container. But uh, so far, we've only moved about five applications. We've got another 10 or 15 that are in progress at the moment. So we're, we're still learning some of those edge cases. I'm kind of curious, how do you make that change, right? How do you tell Rails to log the standard out? Because I've, I've always just said, oh, go dump it to the file you would normally dump it to. In other words, I don't do anything to it. Oh, it's just settings in the production RB environment file. You just define the logger to a, to standard out. It's unsure how I would say that you uh, you start a new active support logger and in the parameter that you pass to it is just standard out and that handles it for you. Cool. What is your Kubernetes platform? The moment we're developing one in-house, I'm unsure of whether it's it's not so much a public thing it's we're calling it maestro though we do use a couple off the shelf components we use the istio service mesh and we're also using ambassador for ingress i know istio could probably handle the uh ingress as well for that ambassador is doing but i think we were using ambassador before we started this so we just kept that there and that way we can switch in a different service mesh as time goes on if it didn't work out but we're we're really loving istio yeah, we've talked about Istio a couple of times on Adventures in DevOps, and it it looks like a really powerful tool. And I know a lot of people are using it. So, so Michael, did I hear you right? Did you say you all are creating your own Kubernetes platform? Uh, yes. The It's actually another team with Inside Doximity that's in charge of it in for platform. Really, I'm just in charge of helping move some of the applications. And as an SRE, you know, we're... Our main thing that we're in charge of is the production system, making sure that it's up, running, and running well. So as things are moving to Kubernetes, we're kind of helping spearhead that move just so that we're really aware of how applications run on it and how to monitor them, how to how to respond when there are issues, that sort of thing. So that's kind of why our team is involved in it, although we're not the ones directly creating the platform. Yeah, I'm just a little surprised. That seems like a big task to undertake unless it provides some true differentiation to your to your business model. Doesn't seem like a small task. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I think that a lot of that is just at Doximity, we have really good, strong infra and DevOps practices and teams that kind of take a lot of the things away from the developers so they don't have to know whether they're deploying to Kubernetes or to somewhere else. They just have to say, hey, ship my change and it goes up the right way. So that's kind of, that's how they've always run the legacy platform where we're 
pushing, uh, you know, to just servers on EC2 on AWS. And now they're, they've built their own platform so they can all hook in together. So again, a lot of those details are kind of hidden from the developers so they don't have to worry about them. Okay. So it sounds like that's the motivation as part of the transition or migration strategy and, and removing some of those details from, from app devs. Got it. So beyond logging to standard out, I mean, what else have you done to make this all run? Okay. Well, there are, there are a lot of changes. One of the bigger ones is that this really separates the build time environment and the runtime environment. In our in a lot of previous systems, when you have some EC2 instances that are up and running, when you deploy your code, it has to actually deploy to that server. It has to bundle install. It has to run yarn and things like that. Well, those things don't necessarily need to be on the final artifact. You don't need yarn on the final artifact if it's just going to be used in a kind of pre-com filing step before the box is up. You So we've really had to look at separating the different concerns of what was maybe a part of the application and a dependency, but isn't really required for running the app. So we've been looking at things like there's a lot of JavaScript runtime dependencies that people have like Uglifier or the EcoGem that really don't have any need to run when you're in production and there, it's only a part of the deploy or pre-compilation process. So when the containers are being built, we need that installed on whatever's building the container, but we don't need it on the final application. And so we build the application, get a container built, deploy, and the container that we built doesn't have those JavaScript runtimes on it. It is removing that potential security risk because the Node.js can't be exploited if it's not there. So when we do this and have a smaller container image and deploy it, then we find that maybe Uglifier is just in the gem file and we have to go remove it from the gem file. One of the things that we did was we made an environment variable called precompiling assets. And that environment variable is only set to true when we're in that build process. So we've made an initializer. And in that initializer, when the environment variable is true, it requires those couple gems like Uglifier so that they can run, but then they're not required anymore at runtime. They're no longer in the main gem file. And that, again, the, the po- purpose there is to reduce the risk of running things in the runtime that you don't need. Can we've I just also say that found I, that a lot... Oh, go ahead. I don't like, I don't like the gem... Uh, no, not gem... I don't like Uglifier because of its name, because you know I'm not the best looking guy at the best of times. So <laughs> you know, honestly, Uglifier kind of knocks my self confidence a bit. I know, I know it's supposed to reduce the size of JavaScript, but it's honestly put me off reducing the size of my JavaScript at all. If I could call it Slimifier, you know what I mean, or mm-hmm. Slenderifier, that, I think that'd be a lot better. I, I think Slim is like a templating language as well that probably. Kind of has yeah, that right. same same goal of making the code less. So I know I got really into Hamel for a while, probably four five years ago. Uh, since stopped using it, I, I just don't like having that extra layer in between me and the code. It's really just kind of it, it's supposed to make the code slimmer, uh, but I felt like it just kind of obfuscated what you were trying to do a little bit. It wasn't as easy. Right. Plus, I love typing div on the keyboard. I know exactly where all the letters are. <laughs> Very much so. Now, Luke, One I think we're to the... Thing. 
Luke, I think we're to the okay. point now where we have to give these gems clickbait names so that people will pay attention to them. I mean, after all, we are here talking about Ugly Fire, so it caught people's attention, but what are you going to do? True. One of the other changes we made that's kind of related to that build time, runtime environment is that we went into most of the initializers in our app and would put an early return if we were pre-compiling assets. And that just skips it because a lot of those initializers are reaching out to external services or setting up different things that aren't really needed when you're building. They're parts of what are needed when running. A lot of times we put that return in every initializer, try to deploy and find that sometimes there was some of that code that definitely needed to be there during the build process. And it would normally, you know, have a fairly informative error message that would point to the right initializer and we'd just go put it in there or refer to a class or something that's missing. And we'd go back and take the return out of that initializer or move it lower. And that was the main other kind of change that we made for the difference between build and runtime, though there were some other differences as well. Things like Chef. We're no longer using Chef at all when previously in our old system, Chef was running you know, every 30 minutes on the box. And so changes could be made that way. And there were some things like uh, Scout APM, which the way we had configured most of our Rails apps was actually through Chef linking a file that would link in the config file. So then again, the developers don't have to worry about configuring Scout, but it just appears, or the config file just kind of appears there in the app from Chef. But since we don't have Chef anymore, we had to just add one manually ourselves. And that was another thing where like a lot of apps would have a uh, linked files section in one of their... Uh, I believe, environment files. And we just have to go and take that out because otherwise it would it would cause a problem when it ran into that and there is no chef ever going to run on the box. Yeah, that's interesting because I haven't really done anything with chef inside of containers, right? I know that I think Discourse, when you set it up, it, it runs some chef stuff inside the container for Discourse. But yeah, I, I never and, quite yeah, that- got my head around it. <laughs> Yeah, that might just be us choosing not to use it there. We're, we're trying to do the build so that it does everything and so that the container is fully ready to go. So there are no, no need to alter anything inside the container after it's built. Yeah. And, and I think that's preferable generally just because, yeah, you, you can just spin it up, right? Hand mm-hmm. it off to Kubernetes or put it on your machine. You just hand it to Docker or whatever the engine is and just let it run, right? You don't have to go do the rest of that setup. I think adding setup to Docker is kind of weird. Yeah, and and that's it's really advantageous when it comes to scaling because mm-hmm. with our legacy platform, if you have to put up new boxes and then deploy to them and wait for the asset precompile, and it just it could take six, seven more minutes. Whereas with Kubernetes, you're literally able to throw that container up and it joins and is running within just a few seconds. So it allows us yep. to be much more responsive to scaling needs. Yeah, to ex- to expand on the point that you all are talking about, I think it's an advantage, actually. The portability is a benefit, and it's also a constraint. You don't have external external dependencies or other kind of magic going on, like chef placing files or doing things. You're forced to explicitly call out all of these things. If you don't already have those artifacts under CM control, you're probably doing that then so that you can get it into your build and onto your container image. So I actually think in the end, that probably simplifies life a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. One one thing that I'm a little curious about, you know, you mentioned 
hey, you know, we can just spin up as many of these as we need. What's your approach to that as far um, as like setting up Kubernetes so that it's like, okay, we're getting more traffic. Let's make more of these. Okay, we're getting less traffic. Let's kill some of these, right? Auto-scaling. Yeah. Yeah, we, we do our auto-scaling in Kubernetes based on CPU use. So you have a series of pods all running an application. And we're just trying to keep CPU use somewhere close to 60% or so as it gets up to 60%, new servers launch. When it drops much below it, servers start to drop off. We have a min, a minimum and a maximum defined. So if it starts to get near either one of those, alerts go off just to let us know. And that's kind of that's one of the things that changed a lot about Kubernetes is before we'd be monitoring as SREs looking for things like an application starting to have really high CPU. It's using you know 90% of its CPU available, but Kubernetes is just scaling that out of the way. So what we're seeing is really more uh, runaway scaling. You'll do something that causes an application to suddenly start consuming a lot more CPU, and it's just scaling up and up and up until it gets near or close to its maximum. And that's really what the kind of the danger alert comes from for us in Kubernetes is that runaway scaling more than CPU use. Do you know the story of the magic porridge pot? Is that an American story? I do not. This I is the either. story where uh, so a, a, a lady acquires a magic porridge pot that when they say the magic word will continuously produce more porridge, but then she forgets the magic word to stop it producing more porridge and the entire village gets covered in porridge and everyone dies. Okay. Yeah, I've, this is, I've heard this a similar story with the. I was just saying, I've heard a similar story with the spaghetti pot before. <laughs> I expect it's it's an it's the Italian version. There we go. Yeah, come on, American Americans don't eat porridge, man. I'm betraying my Eastern European roots <laughs> there. One thing that I was also wondering a little bit about here is, you know, so you you mentioned uh, some of the advantages of this approach, like with the auto scaling and stuff. But what other advantages are you seeing from running? Uh, containers that are put together this way? The the speed to scale is the main one from my perspective, at least. I, I feel like there's that consistency in having those deployable artifacts. You can roll back to a version mm -hmm. very quickly as well because the container is right there. So really, it's to me all about having those artifacts existing and just being able to use them however you need quickly. It's, it's really just cut down a lot of the extra time you would have in emergency situations, trying to roll back by maybe merging a revert PR and then doing that. You can literally just point it at the hash of the old container and say, deploy this one. It's up there. That is such a huge benefit. Oh my goodness. I mean, I wish I had this on some other service teams I've worked on. You know, think about you're going through a deployment and you're looking at your your metrics and your dashboards. You start to see some customer impact from a bug that was in there, whatever the case might be. To be able to sit that quickly, I mean, I know how fast the containers can spin up to be able to revert back or roll back that quickly and mitigate the customer impact. That is so that is so huge. It really is. <laughs> Do you use the rolling updates? That was the Kubernetes thing that really caught my eye. The ability to kind of like start like 
I know that Istio provides canary deployments, kind of A-B testing type stuff where you can just start sending 1% of traffic to the new deployment and leave 99% on the old one. I don't think mm. we've implemented that yet, but we do have plans to. That was that was the magic feature for me where you can see the errors light up your monitoring dashboard and go, no, no, roll back, roll back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your sentry setup or whatever starts going bananas. Another thing that I'm wondering about, we talked about this yesterday on Adventures in DevOps, and I don't know where we are on the release schedule as far as when they'll come out, but we talked a bit about having developers involved in the DevOps process. And it sounds like you're kind of in a place where you're straddling some of that concern, right? Where you're you're fiddling with Rails, but you're also fiddling with the infrastructure setup. How involved are the developers in these decisions? I'm sure it depends on some of the decisions, but yeah. How, how much collaboration is there versus just you guys going, well, this is clearly the best way to do this. We're going to do it this way. We absolutely talk to and consult with the different development teams and listen to them about their requirements, how they think the app's going to behave. They talk to us, you know, hey, we're going to launch this new feature. It's going to talk to another one of our applications very heavily. It's going to really change the traffic, that sort of thing. But really, it's more the infra teams and us that kind of make the decisions about what size the boxes will be or will you know how mm-hmm. much how many resources to give a different application gotcha and i guess the other question i have is how is your application architected i mean are you using like ser- service oriented microservices in in ruby or is it just monolithic rails or how do you approach any it, of that it's a monolith being deconstructed into microservices. There's still the big monolith that maybe has a little bit more into it than is not a very focused application. And then there are a lot of small focused microservices have been extracted over time. I got you. Yeah, so well, still in transition some? I think it'll, it'll always kind of be still in transition some. Yeah, I know that right. there's uh, at least one new application kind of being extracted right now. So. I know there's a lot of people that are very fond of the modular monolith approach. So we have a lot of apps that kind of talk to each other like that. I'm not sure if I understand exactly what you mean by that. I've seen so many different ways of setting up Rails apps. I forget what company it was that published it first, but ultimately it's like a nested engine approach. Oh, okay. So you have like kind of apps within apps. Uh, we we don't necessarily do that at Doximity fully, but mm-hmm. the the principles are are definitely are are there <laughs> spread so you, spread across the team using using Rack to kind of have multiple backends. It sounded like they were taking Rails engines and just bolting them in with your. Uh, yeah, I mean we we don't routes. do that, but I mean the modular monolith approach is doing that. Yes. <laughs> where okay. you have Rack that snaps in the, the various apps with via Rails engines. Uh, that's kind of taking it to the extreme. I think more the principles are just kind of nesting applications and sharing mm-hmm. you know, some global state or ideas right. across. I'm trying to decide how I feel about doing it all with Rails engines because I've had, I've had success with them, but I'm not always happy with the way that they kind of hang together. So, Michael, can you talk a little more about how Paquetto is used in this process. And I know it's kind of early on with the separation of build versus runtime. Paquetto? Paquetto? <laughs> is that okay. how you say it? I, I think so. Paquetto build packs is a it's a piece of software that we use. And what it does is it kind of examines your application and then builds you the container. So what it does is it looks at the different requirements for your application by reading through your code 
and then puts the right pieces of software on the container mm-hmm. for you. Now, we've had to make you know some minor adjustments here or there with the version we're running to make it perfect for us. But in, in general, it, it kind of does it all for you, where it's, it's able to read your gem file, it's able to read the different things that you've required and knows if you need image magic or whatever different pieces of software on your on your server for you. So the Paquetto build packs are really doing a lot of the heavy lifting on the build process for us. Do you end up having to manage your own Docker files then? Or is the build pack essentially able to construct that whole thing for you? Yeah, we we don't need a Docker file at all. Uh, The build pack takes care of that completely. We did start off this project building our own Docker files and doing that doing that for to make our containers, but not quite sure who it was who discovered Paquetto. But once we discovered that, we really focused our efforts on using that and changing making the changes to it so that it would do exactly what we needed rather than writing our own Docker files. Yeah, I was going to ask cuz as I've done Docker and setup and stuff like that, I mean Usually, I just have a monolithic Rails app, and so that all goes in one container, but then I've got things like the workers, and most of the time, I'm running uh, Webpack and asset compilation in its own container. And so I wind up with three or four containers, and I was wondering if it was smart enough to say, oh, looks like you've got a rescue worker here. We're going to put that in its own container so that it doesn't, you know, whatever. We're still kind of defining with the like a specification file like Kubernetes would normally use. We have our own version of it, and we have to tell it mm-hmm. what different nodes to run. Of course, you know you have your web node running. For us now, it's Puma, but then we have to run the other like a, a sidekick worker node. If you have some other rake tasks that's running, that's another node, and each of those have their own min and max and scale independently. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I will say, Michael, that you should probably get in touch with uh, Pecato Marketing because I went to their website because I read your article and I had no idea what Pecato did, uh, but you just explained it very clearly. <laughs> Good. You know, I, I had it explained to me pretty clearly by <laughs> other people. So I, I haven't done a lot of work on their website either. So I'm not sure what it says. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, and what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. So I guess the other question is, and you've got this as kind of the fifth point in your article, is optimizing the web server. If it's if you're running, let's say, hundreds of these, I, I don't know how much traffic you get or how many instances you need. But the more instances you have, obviously, the more you can optimize these images, the better off you are as far as cost and and things like that. So, so what what do you do there to get the most out of each container so that it, yeah, it saves the company money? Well, one of the things that we did was we changed from we were running everything on Passenger, and Passenger is a really fully featured web server. It can do like TLS 
and all, all kinds of things with the communication that we don't really need anymore because running Istio Service Mesh, running mm-hmm. Ambassador for our Ingress, they're handling SSL termination, they're handling the TLS communication, all that sort of stuff. So Puma is a little bit, we're, we're putting it in a very simple mode. And that's my understanding of why we're, we chose Puma for our web server for all of our Kubernetes apps. There were a couple small changes we had to make. But a lot of that was about just getting it to work with the way we collect metrics. We we send a lot of metrics to Prometheus and Prometheus holds time series data. So essentially it's like at this time, there were this many jobs in this sidekick queue. And then it just keep, it keeps reporting. And you're, you're able to use PromQL to pull that data back out and graph it and things like Grafana. And... Prometheus has three built-in ways of storing data, and that really affects how you're going to set up your web server, whether it's threaded, how many processes you have going on, because Prometheus has different modes for collecting that data. It's fastest in single-threaded mode, but of course, we, we know we want multiple threads. If we only had one Puma thread per container, we'd be running thousands, possibly. So that's what we just looked at kind of the way Prometheus had to collect data and that informed what we did with Puma. We had to put it into what's called single mode, which uh, just runs one Puma process, but allows it to be uh, multi-threaded. This is part of the article I got excited about because I've been doing Puma scaling this week and I hit exactly the same thing as you when you kick uh, Puma into what they call clustered mode which means that you set the workers to something other than zero. So by default, it runs in uh, non-clustered mode, but as soon as you run it clustered mode, it starts doing strange things because it becomes a kind of multi-process setup and you have to mess with, I had it on the screen here, you have you have a thing called before fork in your Prima config and on worker boot, and you have to kind of mess with your app to make everything work. But I found that with Puma, if I did use multiple workers, I could increase the number of concurrent users from about 1,400 to kind of getting on to 6,000 when I did load testing. So I just wondered if you, if what size of uh, instances are you running your containers on? Because I found a massive boost in actually enabling the workers. You know, I'm not actually sure what size the Kubernetes, the what size the instances are that, that it's running on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of hidden from me by uh, our infra platform team. It's definitely something I can go look up at some point. I just haven't done it yet. I uh, it's it's weird that it was something I was working on this week. If you're if you're just running on the standard kind of single core instance, I don't think you'd see any benefit. But uh, if you if you're using something beefier, then uh, certainly I got a lot more concurrency out of it by enabling workers. But because, as you said, you're kind of running multiple processes and it kind of forks halfway through the app setup, then you, you have to mess around these hooks to get it to work properly. I'll definitely talk to the team about that. I mean, in the end, though, do you think is there a sacrifice in performance here in order to have to configure the web server this way because of Prometheus? Or do you think it kind of comes out in the wash once you've got a, a number of containers in your cluster? Well, I, we, we are running a fairly big Kubernetes cluster. Some of the things that we've moved over already are running upwards of 30 uh, containers. So I, I know that 
I know that what we're doing right now is pretty performant. I also know that I haven't been asked to look into tweaking that sort of stuff to make uh, so that we can run more containers on any single server. It it just hasn't been something that's been brought up on our end. So one other thing that I'm wondering about is if I have kind of a small application that's getting some traffic, but not a ton of traffic, I'm probably pretty okay just kind of running everything in one spot, you know, on a VPS or a container or two that I deploy somewhere in the, the cloud, right? But as I get larger, then I'm going to start thinking about some of these problems. So I'm curious, at what stage do you think this kind of an approach starts to really pay off? For me, it all still comes back down to the apps that we want to have auto scale up and down a lot. The ones that have really like, for instance, one of our products, the Doximity Dialer has a 20,000% increase in traffic every morning starting at about 8am. And just there's not many doctors making phone calls to their patients overnight. But during the workday, during the during the week, it, it's a lot. So for me, I feel like it's really about that scaling. I know that a lot of the apps we've moved over so far are a lot of the smaller ones. And we are running just two or three pods and they're never scaling up or scaling down. We we run those, you know, two or three just to make sure there's a couple. We don't want to have just one up there. But I think that we're going to see a lot more of that impact as we start to move some of our bigger applications into production on it. Mm. It starts to pay off once Kubernetes really starts to take care of everything and Michael can sit margaritas at the pool while uh, Kubernetes is handling everything <laughs> instead of watching dashboards. It, That's it right. Ruby Rogues coming yeah. to you live from Margaritaville. <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely helps. We do. I feel like the apps that we have transitioned, we get a lot less alerts for. Uh, some of that may have been that previously the way we were scaling was not so much based on CPU, but actually more based on traffic where every app has kind of a a scaling target number where we're trying to send you know 400 requests per minute to each server or 400 requests per minute to like each of the servers. And when it gets much above that, it starts to try to put up more servers. Of course, not being on Kubernetes and having to deploy to them, they can take 10 minutes to show up. And by the, that time, maybe traffic has continued to climb and you're trying to continue and you're chasing it. Whereas uh, with Kubernetes, it's just so quick. So one thing that you said that kind of caught my attention was that at least I, it was implied that you're still making this transition for some of your apps. What what does that process look like? When you have another system or part of your system that you want to deploy to Kubernetes, what are you doing to get that all ready? Is it these steps here that we've already talked about? Or are there other preliminary things that you have to do first? I mean, it's generally these steps. First, we, we've got to get the app running in a container. And then, you know, we have a lot of different staging environments and we tried to get it up and running in one of our staging environments. There actually were a couple other changes that we've discovered we had to make since I wrote the article. Um, they're, they're being collected for a follow-up article at the moment. But some of the things that we had to do were when we moved to Paquetto build packs, one of the things that we hadn't quite realized at the beginning was that every gem file needed to have a Ruby version specified in it because that's where Paquetto is looking for, to find what version of Ruby to run. It's not looking at like your .ruby-version file or anything like that. Another thing that we found 
was a lot of our apps had the force SSL setting in their environment file set to true. And that was needed the way we had everything set up uh, with just EC2 servers. But now with Istio and Ambassador, they're handling the SSL termination for us. So we have to set that to false. Um, false is the default as well for that one. So for some apps, we just had to go in and make sure it was still commented out. But any ones that had it turned on, we had to make sure it was turned off. Um, Another thing that I didn't talk about in the article was the need to add a Docker ignore file just to prevent you from copying things like your readme into the container because there's no reason for that to be there. And uh, I mean, a lot of times the readmes will have semi-sensitive data. We try real hard to make sure you're not, you know, putting passwords or anything in your readmes. But at the same time, it's real easy for something to be in there that you don't necessarily want to get out. I mean, of course, we still hope that no one's getting on to our servers and finding these files, but there are just things that you don't need to put into the image. So can you talk a little more about how you're monitoring all of these containers? And what I'm getting at more is, I know that we use open tracing or what's now open telemetry. Uh, um, yeah, open tracing. Can you speak to what that is and kind of enlighten how it fits into this process? Sure. Yeah. Open tracing is, it's not quite a standard. Uh, I think they're working on making it a standard. It's really just an API specification right now, but um, it allows you to create tracing data that works with several different frameworks. The frameworks we use for that are Lightstep or Jaeger. And what traces are, are essentially a way of look from the UI perspective, Looking at a trace allows you to view the critical path of execution through uh, through any request. You can look at a trace and see, okay, it spent this much time in this controller, dropped down into the model, did this, was in active record, spent this amount of time waiting on a database call. And it, uh, if you've ever been in the network panel inside of like Firefox, for example, and seen the way those bars kind of draw across to show you the different things loading, it's very similar to that. And so what we've done is we've, we have our own gem that gets put into most of our applications and it hooks into the code and sends off trace data, which is then collected by Lightstep or Jaeger and allows us to go in and really dig into where time is spending in a request. And really what the neatest thing about this is, is that when your application makes a request to another one of our microservices in some way, it adds some headers that include a span ID that Lightstep recognizes on that other application. So that application starts sending its traces, also including that span ID. And that allows you to essentially connect data across different applications all as a part of one request. So instead of just, oh, it went off and it asked for something and now we don't know. And before it came back and it's just a kind of blank hole, we can actually, we have it instrumented and can see where it's spending its time in each part. Nice. That does sound nice. And I just took a peek at the website. It's great. It looks very professional. It looks similar to like AWS X-Ray. And then it says, open tracing on Kubernetes. Get your tracing for free. Get your YER tracing for free. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're using kind of a combination of the open tracing data to really dig into any 
specific endpoints or specific requests. When we look at a, something and we say, oh, look, P, uh, P50 for this latency is pretty good, but P99 is really high, then we can go into and look at individual traces for requests to that endpoint and kind of look at the ones that are taking the longest and see what's going on and then finding out things like, oh, this one does have an N plus one query, but it doesn't really affect most people because most people don't have 400 messages in their inbox or 4,000 messages in their inbox or something like that. Whereas this one, these people may have kind of a data issue, that sort of thing. It really helps us to track down the specific thing going wrong. Does open tracing give you insight into maybe troublesome nodes? Not so much. I guess, I guess you could kind of, if you correlate that all the traces that seem to be taking a long time for a particular endpoint are on one specific node, then you might see that. We tend to see issues with specific nodes more in our kind of Prometheus data where we've built these Grafana dashboards that will show us, you know, we have like dashboards for applications that will show us, you know, total CPU used by the application. But then we also have Grafana dashboards for each individual server. And so you can go into those and see, oh, look, the overall applications seems to be doing good. But this particular node, the memory is just really high. We can see like a seesaw pattern. There's obviously some sort of cache evictions happening very regularly. And it just, it, it helps us point to where we want to troubleshoot things that way. So are there particular issues you're still trying to solve with this setup or have you pretty much stabilized on the way you do things? I feel like we're, most of the things that are still trying to be solved are more on the DevOps side of it, kind of infra teams, just in making sure that we can connect between the different networks properly. Like we still have a lot of resources, things like Kafka or uh, databases that just aren't in Kubernetes at all. And making sure that that communication is secure is kind of that like last little step. Because most of the applications we've moved over so far have just had maybe a database, but haven't had a whole lot of sidekick or Kafka type consumers and things like that. So that's kind of, I think, what's what we're going through right now. The other question I have is a lot of the draw for a lot of people with a Docker based or container based setup is that I can run on my dev machine what effectively is what runs in production, right? And so I'm curious, you know, it sounds like this is a little bit more involved than kind of your standard Docker Compose or whatever. Do you have people running like Minikube or something on their machines or do you have just a completely different dev setup? Not the developers at the moment. I know that a lot of the infra teams are running their own clusters for testing. But we use just a Docker Compose setup that okay. is cl close, but is not quite the same. I feel like once we've made a full transition and have all of our apps over there, or maybe not by the time, maybe sooner than that, but I feel like that's something we want to look into is a way to get people running the exact same thing locally. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, that's, that's obviously better than there being some differences. But for the moment, we're still on a Docker Compose solution that was developed before we started the transition to Kubernetes. Right. I mean, the flip side is, is that whether it's Docker desktop or Minikube or whatever, you know, they do suck up a bunch of resources off of your machine. And so it's not a slam dunk that way either. Yeah, that was, that was one of the things that I definitely did before 
uh, this podcast was make sure I turned Docker completely off and stopped all my <laughs> containers just because, you know, my, my computer is often an absolute heater. Uh, my, my office here at home is the warmest room in the house. And it's probably just because I'm typically running 20 to 40 Docker containers on it. There's a comic strip in there somewhere, right? You know, well, luckily yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm the one who's always a little cold in my house. So I like it. <laughs> it's great for me. Right. Yeah. Show a guy sitting in his office with a towel around him and steam raising up everywhere. Oh man, nice I had sauna. a race against, I had a race against time with Docker on my Mac. I had an issue with my laptop where it would overheat within 40 seconds of booting up because uh, Docker for Mac was absolutely thrashing the CPU. So I had to kind of frantically type as soon as it booted to desperately get my SSH keys off it. Otherwise, I'd be locked out of all my servers. And in the end, Ooh. of course, it turned out I hadn't uh, screwed the heatsink on properly. So uh, once I got that, that was fine. But my word is Docker does tend to, to heat your laptop up a little bit. Just a little bit. I was going to ask about Scout APM because we're running a um, operational Kubernetes setup. And... It's an absolute nightmare to debug without Scout APM or New Relic or what's the other one? Badger? Badger something? What's the other one called? Honey Badger. Honey Badger, that's the one. Yes. Um, unless you have one of these third-party services, I found the Kubernetes logs pretty much impossible to track down. I would agree. There's a lot that comes out of the Kubernetes system. Luckily, I feel that I'm a little insulated from it. The Infra Platform team has given us a logs command that we can run to just get the logs for any specific application. So we don't really have to dig through the kind of the rest of the logging that may come out of a specific server. We can look at just what comes from one application and that really helps. But we we also, you know, we do have Scout APM. I'm familiar with New Relic from other jobs, and it's also extremely useful at times. I really like the correlations. Um, that's something that Lightstep also does for us. Uh, Lightstep is looking for correlations between deployments. And, you know, you deploy something, and if immediately your latency kind of uh, raises for an application, it'll send us an email and say, hey, why don't you check out this deployment and see how things are going, see if something's gone wrong, because we're seeing a very different traffic pattern now. And that's that's really useful to us. Well, that's very cool. Yep. That's one of those things that's kind of a double-edged sword, right? So using containers improves your observability. And that's in part because what used to be one deployable unit let's say now you've broken it out into 10, you've got 10 smaller containers. So you can observe what each of those 10 individual things are doing, get the metrics and all that. But it also adds the complexity because now you've got 10 deployable units. And so you have to manage each one of those. So yeah, I think the, the tooling around the observability, like it, it really opens up a lot of possibilities, but you really need that good tooling to keep track and keep saying with all of these uh, containers, if you're going that route. Absolutely. We've, besides just Lightstep, our Prometheus, Grafana, Graphs, and Scout, we're also using Sensu Go and PagerDuty. So some of these, it's not just that we're collecting metrics, we're also turning these metrics into alerts through Sensu Go by saying, hey, when this thing passes this mark or 
that sort of thing, send us an alert, which we then use pager duty. Part of the SRE duties is to be on call once every several weeks and respond to incidents for that. Makes sense. Well, we've been talking for about an hour. I'm going to push us to picks unless anyone has a burning question they need to throw in or Michael, if you have something else that we didn't ask about that we should have. All right, well, let's do the picks. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I've put together the curriculum, and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people, and now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a master class. It's going to be a four-week master class where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Darren, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So my pick this week is an article on Hacker Noon that I recently read. I'm going to probably mispronounce the name. It's written by Tavi Rehimaji. But it's about 10 things in engineering that we don't really spend enough time on. And it calls out some of the typical things, you know, like one of the hard problems of naming things. But why I really found this article valuable and why I picked it this week, it reminded me of the need. Sometimes you need to slow down in order to speed up. Like all of us are very busy. We have a lot of work to do. I always personally tend to try to do things quickly so I can, you know, get something done, get on to the next task. There's a lot to do. But going too fast on some of these tasks, some of the engineering work is almost always the cause of mistakes that I make, maybe a bad decision. So a lot of the items on this list in this article really made me think about that. And that's why I wanted to call it out, including things like code reviews. You know, the team that I'm on now, we I, I kind of pushed us to recently start doing code reviews on everything. And it's been such a such a big change, even though it feels like it draws time away. The article calls out, don't just don't just put LGTM like looks good to me. Like actually give it give it some more thought. Give some, give thoughtful feedback. People do actually want to hear that. Another interesting call out is on alignment between different teams. And if you can get better alignment on teams between data definitions, interfaces, you know, you can actually get rid of things like ETL jobs because you've got better alignment. So, and then even simple things like just giving praise to other developers or other folks on your team when it's deserved. So great article worth a quick read. That's my pick for this week. Awesome. Luke, what are your picks? Yeah, I hate code reviews and anything, anything <laughs> I hate, anything I hate is usually good for software quality. So uh, that's good. There's an important pull request on the hot wired stack. The hot wired, of course, is the new, um, DHH alternative to single page apps. There's been a long standing issue on Hotwired, especially affecting my little experiments, where clicking too fast on links breaks it. And uh, it looks like they fixed it. I received an email a couple of days ago with a DHH's uh, name on it with a, with a fix on it. So uh, if you had looked at Hotwired before and it had broken horribly, it might be time to take another look. My second pick is the book Mastering Rhoda. We had uh, Jeremy Evans on a while back, and I've deployed my first Rhoda app to a customer. That's been uh, that's been a really fun thing to do. And my non-Ruby pick this week is to do with 3D printing. I use a thing called a Prusa 3D printer, and uh, if you change the nozzle on your 3D printer. You can actually get it to print twice as fast with a few tweaks, but you need to move the print, the Pinder probe, 
to pin the probe up or down a little bit to get it to work properly. Otherwise, and every single print, you have to kind of sit there frantically adjusting it while the head moves around. And uh, after I just moved this blaster thing up, I think it was two millimeters. Suddenly, I get perfect prints again. So the final uh, slightly esoteric print is moving the Pinder probe on your Prusa printer up two millimeters. Awesome. Yeah, the mastering rota pick that you have there, uh, Federico, the guy that made that, he worked for me for like three or four years. So cool guy. Valentino, what are your picks? So I've been playing with a lot of uh, wearable electronic stuff lately. And I picked up a couple of these hardware pieces from Adafruit called uh, Gemma. And they're very small little, like almost like the size of a quarter microcontrollers. And you can use conductive thread to kind of wrap around the outside of it pretty easily and sew it onto whatever material you want. So they're really fun to play with. And I've been also using a special kind of switch that I discovered called a reed switch. It's, It's basically just a physical switch that is sensitive to magnetic fields. So as you get a magnet close to it, it will switch one way or the other. So I've been having some fun with that. That's it for me. Awesome. I'm going to throw out a couple of picks here myself. I just finished a book called Rocket Fuel. It's by Gina Wickman and some other guy whose name I can't remember because he's not as famous, I guess. It's a terrible thing to say. Mark C. Winters. just looked it up. So if you're running a business and you're finding yourself in kind of the visionary role, which is where I've been finding myself with devchat.tv and all the stuff that we're doing, it talks you through the process of finding an integrator, which is somebody that will actually kind of rein in your insane, I want to do this, and now I want to go do this, and now I want to go do this, and now I want to go do this, right? Which I've kind of had to learn to rein in on my own, and I'm still not very good at. And the other thing that, uh, it, yeah, it just walks you through, they also, they're also usually pretty good about like marshalling the troops, you know, your in- employees or contractors, and, and making sure that all the work happens the right time in the right order and things like that. Which again is stuff that I've had to figure out how to do, but I'm not super good at. And I know there are people out there that it comes naturally for. So I'm going to pick that because I'm really enjoying it, uh, or I really enjoyed the book, and it really made me think about who I'm looking for for that. Another book that I am in the middle of right now is A Hundred Million Dollar Offers by Alex Hormozzi, and I like the book just because it it forces you to kind of think bigger on some of the stuff that you're working on in a business. So I'm going to pick those two, and then I'm going to throw out. One more pick that's not mine, and then I've got some shameless self-promotion. The other pick is The Chosen. It's a a video. I kind of want to call it a TV show, but you stream it. So I don't know if that counts. It's completely free. And what it is, is it is a... It's a depiction of the life of Jesus Christ or the ministry of Jesus Christ. The difference between it and a lot of the other biblical videos that I've seen is that this one tends to... Like it's given a whole bunch of backstory to like uh, Peter and James and John and some of the other apostles, right? It gives a more backstory to Mary Magdalene. And so then it kind of plays through how those things affect them as they follow Jesus and, you know, how they run into and meet him. And so anyway, it's really, really good. Uh, It's also filmed here in Utah, which I didn't know when I started watching it, but I looked it up and I was like, oh, that's cool. So anyway, The Chosen... I'm pretty sure they're into season two right now, releasing. And as I said, it's completely free. So I'll put a link to it in the in the show notes. And that way you can go check it out if you want. 
But I love the fact that they just released it free for streaming. And then a couple of things for shameless self-promotion. So one of the things that I've been working on for a while is just figuring out where I wanted devchat.tv to go. And I need to just sit down and record a podcast episode and just walk you all through the journey that I've been on for the last year or so. Kind of coming to the conclusions that I've come to and making some of these changes. Anyway, one of the things that you're going to see happen as we go on is that devchat.tv is going to change and become topendevs.com. And the reason is, is because I'm really dedicated to helping people take control of their careers and then push through to becoming the kind of people they want to be and having the kind of success in the areas that matter to them. So so just keep an eye out for that. Topendevs.com is up. I'm still working on it. Uh, by the time this goes live, I should have it pretty much ready to go. The other thing that I'm doing is one of the ways that I've been able to take control of my careers through podcasting. And so I'm putting together Podcast Bootcamp, podcastbootcamp.io. I'm going to be running it starting mid-September. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, you can go sign up there. And it's going to be four weeks intensive walkthrough on just making you build a podcast that sounds terrific, where you know who your target audience is, and kind of help you with all the technical setup and stuff as well. So we'll, we'll walk you through picking your mic and picking your other equipment. We'll walk you through setting up your website, doing all the hosting that you need for your media files and stuff like that, getting your artwork done. And it's going to be terrific. So I'm opening it up to 25 people. So if you're not in the first 25 people, you'll have to wait for me to do it again. But uh, I'm pretty jazzed about it. And I'm excited to help walk people through it. I was doing this on as uh, group coaching before. So people would sign up monthly until they got through it. It typically took people like two to three months to kind of get their podcast set up and then get traction on it. And I figured out that I could cut some of the stuff out, get people to just launch and do that in four weeks. And so it actually winds up saving you money and time to do it this way. And I thought, oh, well, if that's the case, then let's just pull the trigger and do it. So anyway, uh, that's that's where things are sitting right now. And that's at podcastbootcamp.io. All right, Michael, what are your picks? The thing that I've been reading the most about lately and just learning about is something called recording rules in Prometheus. And recording rules are this idea that you pre-compute some frequently needed or maybe computationally expensive queries that we do in Prometheus. And this just allows us to make our dashboards, if we implement this, go back a lot further. Because basically, if you try to run a query to find a graph of CPU on an application, but you want it to be over the last three months, that's a really expensive query for it to dig through the amount of time series data that Prometheus has. So that's a really interesting article that I've been reading about lately. Awesome. If people want to connect with you online, ask you more questions about what we talked about today, is there a good place for them to find you? I am. I might be in a tree, all one word, on Twitter. Not super active, but I definitely would respond to any questions. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks for coming and talking to us about this. I think it was interesting and hopefully gave some people some ideas on where they could go with stuff. And with that, until next time, folks, max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.